Vanilla Bean, Rocky Road, Cookie Dough, Mint Chocolate Chip. I heard a name in back there. Cookies and Cream, Chocolate. I would imagine there's no one in this room who doesn't know what I'm talking about. It's ice cream. We all love ice cream. I've actually never met someone who doesn't love ice cream. It's almost a universal given. And I bet if I did meet the person who didn't like ice cream, I probably wouldn't trust them. <laughs> did you know Americans consume 1.5 billion, that's with a B, billion gallons of ice cream every year? And I know when we talk about numbers like billions and trillions, you know, they just seem kind of esoteric. But to put that in perspective, 1.5 billion gallons of ice cream is enough to fill 30 million bathtubs full of delicious ice cream. Now you may not know this about me, but I'm lactose intolerant. But guess what? If you offer me some ice cream, there's no way I'm saying no. I'll just deal with the consequences. Because ice cream is that good. I'm all in. So why do we love ice cream? Well, for starters... Our love for ice cream starts with a love for sugar. We love sugar. The sugar in ice cream is easily and quickly digested. It's absorbed into energy for our bodies. In fact, did you know your brains reward you every time you eat ice cream with that feel-good chemical known as dopamine? So like you get some ice cream, you go, man, that feels good. And your brain's like, listen, I want more of that. Here's some dopamine. Get me more of that ice cream. And it just reinforces our love for it. And all the fat from the heavy cream that goes into ice cream has a similar effect on our body as antidepressants. Do you know that? I mean, you can go up to Hannaford right now and get you some. It has the same effect on our body as antidepressants, which is why we instinctively run to ice cream when we're sad. Makes us feel better. The fat also produces, the, uh, it increases the production of saliva in your mouth which is what helps your mouth taste all of the good flavors. So the more saliva that's activated, the more of a flavor party you have. And, th and then we add all those flavors into ice cream. And did you know that because of those fat molecules, the flavor actually clings to that fat molecule, which is why when you eat ice cream, it seems like the flavors tend to linger in your mouth. And that's because they do. The fat helps them to stay there. Also, humans love dynamic contrasts. So when we, when we take the cold ice cream into our mouth and then it begins to warm up, that, the, 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 the cold and the warm, it, it invigorates us. The neurons in our brain start to fire because of those contrasts. And then you add on top of that that we usually add in uh, different kinds of flavors and different kinds of textures, all of which highlights those contrasts. And we love it. All of this combines to make ice cream simply irresistible. So whether you're offered your favorite ice cream, whether that's like the Pizzy Farm people in the room, or some of you are pretty loyal to Lizzie's, or maybe you just love a little tub of Ben and Jerry's, the fact is, when you're offered ice cream, we say yes. It's irresistible. And that doesn't make it coercive. See, when you're offered ice cream, you're invited into delight. Ice cream is an invitation to delight. And because we love that delight, we just simply say yes. 
That's a good way of looking at the doctrine we're covering this morning, the doctrine of irresistible grace. And as we're continuing in our Advent series that we've called Christmas and the Doctrines of Grace, we're taking a theological approach to Christmas this year. We have just been savoring and thinking deeply on that phrase that Jesus will save his people from their sins. The angel told Joseph to name him Jesus, Yeshua, God saves because Jesus will save his people from their sins. And so we've been looking at what does that mean? How does Jesus save his people from their sins? And that's really what the doctrines of grace are all about. And so this week we're in week four and we're looking at the doctrine of irresistible grace. And what this biblical doctrine does is it considers how the redemption of uh, accomplished by Jesus on the cross... How that work 2,000 years ago is applied to us in real time. How is it that something that happened long ago when none of us were there, not, not even born, how could that event do something in our lives today? That's what the doctrine of irresistible grace is all about. In other words, how does the grace of God actually save me? And as we've done over the last few weeks, here's our outline for today. The first thing we're going to do is define this term. I'm just going to unpack what is irresistible grace. And then we're going to spend time walking through lots of different passages of Scripture to defend it from Scripture. Because while we love good doctrine here, every doctrine we believe must be grounded and rooted in the Scriptures. And then we'll apply this doctrine to our lives because these are not just things that theologians like to talk about. They actually have um, impact on the everyday stuff of life. So we'll we'll define it, we'll defend it, and then we'll apply it. So let's begin with a definition. Now before we get into our specific definition of irresistible grace, it's important to remember that this doctrine, that doctrine in general, is really just a way of organizing things. You know, when, when, you, when you have a closet, you don't just throw everything into there. Or maybe you do, and you're always going, man, where is that thing? How, how can I find that thing? It's because it's unorganized. What doctrine does is it brings some organization. It puts some hooks there so you can hang your jacket. It's got little cubbies and some shelves, so that way you can find the things you're looking for. That's what doctrine does. It organizes vast amounts of biblical data into a cohesive, digestible part. We do this intuitively as humans. When, we, when there's a vast amount of data, we organize it, we synthesize it, we systematize it so that every time we come to it, we don't have to go through every single data point again. There's no way that we could do that. And so humans have found ways to organize information so that we can understand it. That's what doctrine is. It's an organizing system to understand what the Bible teaches on any given topic. The doctrines of grace help us organize the Bible's teaching on how Jesus saves us from our sin, which is an incredibly important topic, isn't it? It's like one of the highest, most important things. It's like the reason Jesus came to save us from our sins, and the hope is that we would understand what he's doing so that we could be saved. It's incredibly important. So in week one, we looked at the doctrine of total depravity, total depravity, which says this. Sin has corrupted every part of humanity to the extent that apart from divine intervention, no one has the power in themselves to put their trust in God. And this might be the most 
uh, important of all those doctrines because it's the problem. If you, if you have a wrong uh, awareness of the problem, what's the problem with that? Your solution is off, right? Proper diagnosis leads to a proper prognosis, doesn't it? If you go to the doctor and they miss the diagnosis, that's a big deal. They're going to start treating something that's not there. And the thing that is there isn't going to be treated. Total depravity is saying, what is the problem with humanity? And it's a big problem. See, our minds, as smart as you think you are, your mind is unable to understand the things of God. Sin has broken our minds. So our minds are incapacitated. Not only that, but our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. So if you go, no, no, I don't feel that way. Well, that's just your total depravity lying to you. Your heart is broken. Your mind is broken. We do not desire the things of God. We're not grateful to God for the life he's given, nor do we even acknowledge him. Paul in Romans 1 says this is the great problem with humanity. That we, like at a very simple, basic level, the creation does not acknowledge the creator. And if that weren't enough, when the Bible gets around to describing our spiritual state, it says we're dead in our sin. In other words, the doctrine of total depravity means that we are incapable on our own to make good choices. Namely, the, the most supremely good choice to choose God or to exercise faith in Jesus. We're unable on our own to do that. And then the second week, we looked at the doctrine of unconditional election, which says God chooses people for salvation, not based on anything we do, but purely and unconditionally on his own sovereign choice. See, if anyone is going to be saved, God must intervene on our behalf. That's why the doctrine of total depravity is so important, because on our own, we're not going to get any better. So God has to be the one to step in and do something. And the Bible teaches that God, before the foundation of the world, marked out who he would graciously save based on his own choice. You see, God's either sovereign or he's not. He's not, you can't be mostly sovereign. Mostly sovereign is another way of saying not sovereign. No one forces God's hand. He decides based on his will according to his own determined choices. And then last week we looked at the doctrine of perfect atonement, which says this, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus actually and effectually secured and accomplished the work of redemption for every person who will be saved. In other words, Jesus died, not arbitrarily, he wasn't just in the wrong place at the wrong time. That God the Father was doing something by sending God the Son to die on the cross for our sins. And on the cross, as Jesus died, sins were placed on him. And the question that perfect atonement is asked, whose sins were put on him? And the Reformed tradition teaches us that Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. If we went into a, uh, a department store... People even do that anymore? I'm not sure. But we just do all that online. But let's say we went together, right? And you, you picked out some, a, a nice pair of new jeans, okay? And we got to the register. And then I pulled out my card and I paid for them. And, they, you know, the, it goes through. Everything's secure with the transaction. It's paid. And then the person says, hey, I also need them to pay too. What would we say in that moment? We'd say, well, no, no. They've already been paid for, right? It doesn't matter who pays for them. Someone has to pay for them. But you can't pay for them twice, 
that would be unjust. That's, that's what the doctrine of perfect atonement is saying, is that Jesus died to pay for the sins of his people. Because if he died for the sins of every single person, then every single person's sins would be saved, and therefore everyone would be saved. But that's not how the Bible describes it. Jesus doesn't make salvation possible, but the actual sins, real sins of his actual real people were placed on him, and he suffered and died for his people. So total depravity talks about our need for salvation, talks about the problem. Unconditional election starts to show God's plan to intervene and mark out who he will save. Perfect atonement is about the work of Christ to actually accomplish that salvation. And then we come to the next logical phase of redemption, which is called irresistible grace. And how all of that work that's been done so far is applied to our lives in real time. So with that said, here's our working definition of irresistible grace. At God's appointed time, he applies the finished work of Jesus to those whom God the Father has predestined to life. The Holy Spirit renews their mind and heart, gives them new life, and effectually draws them to Jesus in such a way that by grace through faith, They come to Jesus freely and willingly. So now we're going to unpack that definition. So when Jesus was crucified on the cross, perfect atonement teaches that the sins of God's people were placed on him. The sin of people in the past, the present, and ours in the future. And on the cross as Jesus died, the penalty for our sins was paid and the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what happens in the atonement. It means that the real penalty has been paid. And the just wrath of God has been satisfied. But that finished work needs to come to realization in your life. It has to be applied to real people in real time. And that's what the doctrine of irresistible grace is concerned with. So at God's appointed time, at the moment of your conversion. If you think about your life when you say, this is when I became a Christian. That's when the Holy Spirit is getting involved in the work of redemption. And one of the reasons I love the doctrines of grace is because they highlight the triune work of God in salvation. See, Christians believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. And when God does something, they're never just doing things on their own. The, the, the full triune God does things, and yet each person has a part and a role to play. So God the Father elects us for our future adoption into the family. He's like the architect. He's the one planning. God the Son, he takes on flesh. Christmas, right? That's what's happening at Christmas. And he accomplishes the substitutionary work of redemption. And then God the Holy Spirit takes that work of Christ and applies it to our lives in the lives of every believer. Now remember, you always have to keep in the back of your mind that the Bible describes our sinful state as one of total incapacity. If you ever forget that, these doctrines go uh, get, get hard to, to, to understand. So we are dead, we are blind, we are deaf, and utterly resistant to God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so if we're ever going to come alive, if we're ever going to see the beauty of Christ, if we're ever going to really hear the call of the gospel and freely choose him, the doctrine of irresistible grace says we need God to do something in us. God has to do something in us, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It's the Holy Spirit who comes and makes us alive. We're dead, and the God of life has to come and make us alive. We don't do that. We, we, aren't, we don't have that ability. It's the Holy Spirit who causes regeneration. That's a good biblical word to, to put in, in, your, in your categories. That's from the Bible. Regeneration just means to generate again or to be born again. He's the one who makes us born again, makes us a new creation. And then the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the reality of our sin and the breathtaking offer of the gospel. So if you think back, if you would say, Clint, I'm a believer, and you think back at that moment when you really realized it, when the penny dropped and you realized, man, I am a sinner. Not just theoretically, but really. You can, you can thank that sight to see your sin as the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who opened your eyes to see it. And then at the same time, when you saw the breathtaking offer of the gospel, the fact that you would see it as something so irresistible and beautiful, you can also thank the Holy Spirit to give you those new desires. See, when the work of the Spirit comes into your life, you see for the first time that you are far more sinful than we've ever known. See, the problem with humans isn't that they, that, that, that they don't think they're bad. Every, everyone goes, yeah, I've, I've failed here. I've done things that are wrong. I, I know from time to time I do wrong things. That's not a realization of your sin. Everybody does that. But it's that moment when you go, I'm terrible. Like, I really am a terrible human being. I would not want my thoughts to be projected on uh, display for all to see. That there's a, there's a depth to our sin that in that moment you realize how deep it goes. But at the same time, when the Spirit is present, the reason it doesn't lead you to utter despair is because you realize not only am I far more sinful than I've ever known, I am far more loved than I could possibly imagine. See, when you become a Christian, the very depths of depths and the height of heights come into your life at the exact same time time it's really an experience like you've never experienced before and there's really nothing like it those two things are happening and they're true at the exact same time and because our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh here's what happens you actually desire to be reconciled to god in a way that you've never desired that before your will is renewed so that all of your perpetual resistance to him is finally overcome by his love you're given the gift of faith to believe the reality of the gospel. And you are effectually drawn to Jesus. And when that happens, you repent of your sins. You ask for forgiveness. And then you express your allegiance and affection to God for all that he has done for you in Christ. See, when the Spirit begins that work of regeneration, all those things start to, to happen. And because of the work of the Spirit, we choose Christ. So a lot of times in, in this conversation, people go, well, but pastor, it really feels like I chose Christ in that moment. And let me just tell you, if it feels like on your journey of faith that like you chose Christ, let me affirm that with an emphatic yes. Yes. You chose to follow Jesus and you chose to put your faith in him. You chose to trust in Jesus for your salvation. But all of that 
was made possible because of this prior work of the Holy Spirit. God comes and does something in you, and then with all that work, you freely and gladly choose Christ. Because the Spirit has come in and opened your mind, renewed your heart, given you faith to trust in Him, literally made you alive. Because before that, remember, you're dead. Dead people don't choose anything. You know why? Because they're dead. Cadavers choose nothing. They're dead. But God makes us alive. And then in that moment you say yes to Jesus. It's a real choice. But it requires a prior work. The Holy Spirit liberates us from the bondage of sin that enslaved us and caused us to resist him and to rebel against God. And when we're liberated from that, we gladly take the hand of the Redeemer, of the Liberator, of the one who's conquered our enemies. R.C. Sproul describes irresistible grace like this, that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. So here's what that means. Here's what that means. Irresistible grace doesn't mean that God's grace coerces us. No one is coerced into the kingdom of God. And no one is forced against their will. Rather, the grace of God liberates us. It frees our will from the bondage of our sin. So no one is saved against their will. Because in our sin, our natural disposition is to resist God. But God's grace comes in and works to restore and renew us. So that we can finally make a choice to choose God. If we're kept in our sin, we would never choose him. So let's go back to that illustration of ice cream that I teased up earlier. Right? When ice cream is offered, it's so good that it's irresistible. You're not coerced. It's just the invitation is to something that you really, really want. But you can't choose ice cream if it's not available to you. Do you know there was a time when ice cream didn't exist? It's a terrible time, the dark ages. Right? No one could choose ice cream then because it didn't exist. But now that it, it exists, it's an option for us to choose. In the same way, before God does all of that regenerative work, choosing him is just simply not an option because we're dead and we're bound and we're blind and we're deaf. But when it becomes available, when our minds are renewed, when our hearts are start beating again, when we, we, when we are made alive together with Christ, we choose it willingly, freely, because it's so good. Just like ice cream is an invitation to light, on an infinitely grander scale, when the offer of the gospel is finally put in front of us, in a way that we can really see it, in a way that we can really hear it, it's simply irresistible. We've never been confronted with anything so good. Before the renewing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, you can't choose Christ because that choice is not available to you. Our sin makes us totally incapacitated for any positive response to the invitation of the gospel. You don't see it. Why? Because you're spiritually blind. You can't see it. You don't hear the call of the gospel because your ears are deaf to the things of God. You don't want the gospel because your heart is opposed to God. And even if those things were removed, it doesn't matter. You wouldn't choose anyway because you are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. In the same way, when we hear the gospel in our sinful state, there's no response. 
because we're dead in the trespasses of our sins. What irresistible grace says is that the Holy Spirit comes in and brings new life. And with that new life, there's renewal happening. All the the brokenness in your heart and the, the brokenness of your mind begins to be changed so that you see the beauty, the goodness, and the truth of the gospel. You hear the call of the gospel in a way that you didn't before. You desire reconciliation and you actually want Christ and you choose him because now that you see what you see and you hear what you hear, he is simply irresistible. And none of that is against your will. It's not coercion, but it's an invitation to delight in Christ. So God's grace comes in and renews us and transforms us. And his grace is effectual in that God accomplishes what he intends to accomplish. Which is reconciliation with his people. Pastor Kevin DeYoung writes it like this. While we believe that God's grace is irresistible and flows from his electing love... We must be clear that this grace renews us from within. His grace does not coerce us from without. God is not a puppet master pulling on our strings so that we do what he wants apart from our own willing or doing. His will does precede our will, but it does not eradicate it. We believe that God supernaturally, sovereignly, and irresistibly renews our hearts so that we can feel and choose and do what we ought In other words, friends, God's will doesn't make you less free, but more free. There's not an incompatibility with human free will and irresistible grace. So what happens is God's grace comes in and gives us more choice, not less. In our sin, we have less options available to us. What God's grace does is liberates us and gives us more choice. Greg Forster makes this point well. The work of the Spirit enlarges our freedom. Who is more free, the inquisitive and learned man or the contented ignoramus? By the way, I've never got to say that in a sermon. I'm pumped about that. Who is more free, the sober and self-controlled man or the addict? Who is more free, the man with natural and well-ordered desires or the pervert? In one sense, they're all equally free. That is, they're all free to act within the bounds of their capacities or powers, and they are fully responsible for their actions. And yet, those whose capacities and powers give them a wider scope to exercise their freedom are, in another important sense, freer. Do you see what he's saying? In our sinful state, our capacities are limited and constrained, and so thus we're more limited in our freedom. And when the Spirit brings new life, what does He do? He opens up our capacities. They're enlarged. And now we're free to choose Christ in a way that we were unable to do before. And because we see with new eyes, we hear the invitation with new ears, and we live now with a new heart, we're drawn and delighted to put our new gift of faith in Christ. That's what we mean by irresistible grace. Not less freedom, but more. More freedom because Christ has enlarged our freedom. Now that we understand what we're talking about with irresistible grace, let me show you how the scripture supports and defends that definition. So we, in our scripture reading today, we looked at John chapter 3. Jesus here is speaking, speaking with a man named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a very prominent teacher of Judaism. And Jesus, prior to this, had been performing a, a lot of signs and wonders And here's the reality. Some people saw those signs that he was doing and they believed. 
And then some people who saw those exact same signs did not believe. Now Nicodemus, he's trying to figure out who Jesus is, so he comes to him at night. He knows that that God must be with him because no one could do the things he's doing if God wasn't with him. And yet he's still trying to figure out what's going on. He's got a category for a coming Messiah. So he's trying to figure out, are you that man? Like, what are you doing here? Jesus, we want to know what you're about and what's going on. And let's pick up the conversation in verse 3. So Jesus answers Nicodemus. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of God, So what's happened right before is Nicodemus is saying, hey, Jesus, um, we know that you couldn't do the things you do unless you've come from God. So help me understand that. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is going, well, that's not really what I was asking about. Jesus says, hey, you want to know about the signs I perform? You want to know what they point to? Well, the problem is you can't see what the signs are pointing to unless you're born again. Again, now think about that. The signs that Jesus performed, just like all signs, are pointing to something, right? Isn't that what a sign is? The point of a sign is not the sign, but what the, what the sign points to, right? And Jesus is saying, look, everyone sees the signs. You just need like regular eyes for that. But if you want to see what the signs are pointing to, well, now you need spiritual eyes. You need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God because that's what the signs are pointing to. See, Jesus performed all sorts of signs, but ultimately all of them were pointing back to himself as the one sent from God to bring restoration and redemption for God's people. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, you may see the sign, but you can't see what the signs point to because you've got to be born again. See, being born again is a prerequisite for seeing. Don't miss that. That's really important. Jesus is saying something has to happen in you first before you'll be able to rightly see the signs regeneration being born again must occur first okay nicodemus said to him verse four well how can a man be born when he's old can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born thank you for that visual nicodemus jesus answered verse five truly truly i say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And he gives an example. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, Nicodemus is a smart guy. He knows that Jesus is is working a spiritual metaphor here. But what he doesn't understand is how it's possible for somebody to just start their life over as if they've been reborn. He gets that there's something spiritual going on. And he certainly doesn't understand how a Jew of his pedigree would need that kind of radical transformation that Jesus is talking about. He might get that like wicked bad sinners need that. But, but, but for him, he's a Jew of Jews. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. Why would he need that kind of radical Uh, transformation that Jesus just alluded to but Jesus doubles down on his point he says listen everyone including you Nicodemus needs the spiritual cleansing and new spirit that will transform your heart and he's saying Nicodemus you should know that you're a great teacher you remember that passage in Ezekiel 36 that talks about this kind of spiritual transformation that God promises that everyone needs 
Now, you and I might not be as familiar with Ezekiel 36. I'm guessing no one read that this week. But he is a prominent teacher. He would have known this passage. Here it is on the screen for you. Ezekiel 36. uh, This is promising redemption. And God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Don't miss this. And I'll give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and to be careful to obey my rules. So God had promised when redemption comes that you'll be cleansed with a water that washes away impurities and idols. And that God will give you a new spirit and transform your heart. It's going to work a spiritual heart transplant. You've got this calloused, unworking, dead heart of stone. And he's going to give you a heart of flesh. Like it would be really bad if you went to the doctor and they said, hey, your heart's like stone. Why? Well, because the heart has to pump. It has to move. You don't want constriction, right? And that's what he's saying. You're basically spiritually dead. Heart of stone is a dead heart. And dead hearts... Don't desire God, nor do they choose God. And so God promises to do a heart transplant surgery. And the change that Ezekiel is talking about here will be such a significant change that it will be like being born again. So for a Jew of his caliber, the idea that he needed his whole life cleansed, he needed a spiritual heart transplant, that he needed to be born again would have been really difficult to receive. Because he's like, he's the guy who's, teaching and helping all these people so he thought he was better than everybody else see what most people think they need and this is really really indicative of the culture we live in today what people think they need is a little bit of improvement like a remodel on a home it's like listen the bones are good there's just some ugly and we got to get some renovation work done in here that's what most people think they need But improvement is not regeneration. We we don't need to just get incrementally better. We need radical transformation. Like bulldoze down the whole thing and build it up new again. Something radical. Jesus did not come to make bad people good or good people great. Jesus came to make dead people alive. That's what he came to do. That's what it means to be born again. John Calvin wrote, by the term born again, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of a whole nature. Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. We don't need parts of our life transformed. We need a renewal of our whole nature. And that's what regeneration, that's what Jesus is getting at with the concept of being born again. It's the birth of a new, redeemed, transformed nature. And it's that renewal and that transformation that makes it possible for us to choose Christ. And not only that, Jesus says, Nico, listen to me. You can't regenerate yourself. This is a work of the Spirit. He says, that which is flesh is flesh. So all you'll ever be able to do is that which is flesh. That which is from the Spirit, the thing I'm talking about, spiritual renewal, has to come from the Spirit. And then Jesus makes this analogy between the wind and the Spirit. And more precisely, the effects of the wind and the Spirit. See, wind can't be controlled by humans. Did you guys hear that windstorm last night? 
No matter how much you thought, man, it's really keeping me up. I wish it weren't doing that. You can't control the wind outside of our power and ability. We can't make the wind blow. We can't make it stop. But we can detect its effects. We can enjoy its breeze and when necessary, take shelter in a dangerous storm. And Jesus is saying, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. We can't control the Spirit. You can't make the Spirit move. You can't make the Spirit stop. We do not control Him. But when the Spirit moves, you can see and feel His effects. You see the analogy He's doing there? Just like the wind blows where it pleases, so the Spirit of God moves as He pleases to give spiritual life and rebirth as He sees fit. And not only that, if we were to ring out one more part of that analogy, just think about the whole analogy of birth itself. How many of you decided to be born? Anybody, anybody decide to be conceived? No. You didn't conceive you, and friends, this may be revolutionary, you didn't birth you. You had nothing to do with your natural birth, and Jesus is saying you have nothing to do with your spiritual birth either. We see that spiritual rebirth is a supernatural work of God. And you see this all over scripture. John chapter 1 verse 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Don't miss this. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. John is saying regeneration is not caused by your natural birth. It's not caused by human exertion or performance, but, but spiritual rebirth is from God. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says that God causes us to be born again according to his divine mercy. See, it's important we learn good grammar. It's important to know who's the subject of the verb. When it talks about being born again, who's the subject of that? He, God, has caused us to be born again. You don't cause your born againing. God does that. God doesn't cause us to be born again because we choose him. Rather, what does Peter tell us? According to his divine mercy. When God's looking for a reason to save you, he doesn't go, well, I think they're pretty great. It's according to his own mercy. He decides to be merciful to us, to give us new birth. And when that work happens, we choose him as a grateful response to his prior mercy. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. All what? The passing away and the new creation, all of that is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, we become a new creation and all of it, not some of it, not part of it, all of it is from God. Titus 3.5, Paul says, Jesus saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Okay, so it's not done by works on our own. How is it? But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see that? Jesus saves us. How? 
Not things you do, not works done by you in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's the why. And the what is by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. See, if you choose to receive Christ apart from God's grace, then that sets this whole regeneration and renewal thing in motion. Then the act of choosing would be the basis on which we're saved. If your choice is what gets that train moving, then he would have said Jesus saves us by our work of choosing. But he doesn't say that. God is the one who sets this process in motion. The saving and regeneration and renewal happens first. And then everything else. We were dead and then made alive. We're broken by our sin and then renewed. And with that regeneration and renewal, your inability is replaced by an ability. Your bondage is replaced by liberation. And your opposition to God is replaced by a desire to choose him. And then when all of that happens, when all of those pennies drop, you freely choose Christ. Acts 16, 14. Paul is preaching. And it says, one who heard us, this is Luke reporting. He said, one who heard our preaching was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. How was she saved? Look at this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul came to the river. He was preaching. He meets a woman named Lydia. The Bible describes her as a worshiper of God, which meant that she was open to the idea of God. But she hadn't believed in the gospel yet. She was kind of like living like a Jew, but not, she hadn't converted to Judaism. All that to say still makes her an unbeliever as it relates to belief in Christ. Which means she was still dead in her sin. And then Paul comes, he preaches the gospel, and God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So let's ask a question of the Bible. How was she able to pay attention to the preaching of the word of God? Because God opened her heart. How do any of us pay attention to the preaching of God's word? Because he opens a heart. That's the work of the spirit. Romans 8.30. And those whom he, that's God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's unpack this verse. Those whom God determined to say before, that's what the word predestination means. He also called. Predestination is God's sovereign decision to save some before history began. But that decision to save must be actualized. It has to come to pass in real time, in real history. And that brings us to this language of calling. So God decides whom he's going to save and then he calls us. It's the idea of calling us to life. So at God's appointed time, the work of Christ is then applied to the believer and we're summoned to life. We're called to life through the gospel. And that sets in motion this chain reaction with all the other benefits of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. But the main point to see here is that the calling to life happens at God's initiative, not ours. John 6, verse 37 all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus is saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those who the Father gives to the, to the Son, the elect, will come to Jesus. Did you hear any kind of contingency in there? 
Like all that the Father gives me might come to me. All that the Father gives me maybe will come to me. All that the Father gives me hopefully will come to me. No, there's not a hint of contingency. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father gives to his Son a people and all of them will come to him. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me. And I will raise him up on the last day. Here Jesus states it plainly. It is impossible for men to come to Jesus on their own. If you go, I came to Jesus, the reality is it's because you were drawn to him. The Father draws them to Jesus. John 6, 45. It's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You, people may hear the gospel, but it's only those who have learned the reality of the gospel, the truthfulness of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel from God himself who will respond to the gospel. Lots of people hear it audibly, but only those who have been taught by the Father will come to him. Romans 8.14 for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Again, just a simple question to ask the Bible. How do we become sons and daughters of God? The Bible says we are led by the Spirit. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. How do we come to an understanding of God? It's not on our own. The Son of God has come, and what does he give? He gives understanding. The Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him. Romans 9, 15 to 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God does not come to us by our will or our exertion. See, we are so conditioned in our culture where choice is king to think we choose God and then mercy comes. But the scripture always reverses it. That's what I'm trying to show you scripture after scripture. Mercy comes to us first. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And then we believe and put our faith in him. Philippians 1.29 For it has been Granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What has been granted to us? That we would believe in him and also that we would suffer. The privilege to believe in Jesus and to suffer for his sake is a gift. It's been granted to you. Galatians 1, 15 to 16. Paul's talking about his own life. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me, there's that language of calling in, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul's reflecting back on his conversion to Christ and his subsequent uh, ministry, and he puts the steps of his salvation in order. Did you hear that? He says, well, God set me apart before I was born. That's unconditional election. And then by God's grace, God called him and revealed Jesus to him. Do you see that? Who called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. We don't reveal the son to ourselves. God reveals the son to us. 
And if you remember in the book of Acts, there are three times when Paul describes his conversion. Uh, in, in Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. And if you know his life, you realize he was utterly opposed to God. He was actually, at the moment of his conversion, on a horse, headed to Damascus to kill Christians. He had the, 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 the papers in order. He had been given authorization by the Sanhedrin to kill Christians. And he was excited about it. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks. The Lord of the universe arrives and says, hey, stop doing that. Stop persecuting me. Stop persecuting my people. I've got different orders for you. Follow me and go preach to the Gentiles. And you know what Paul says? Yes, sir. Acts 26. He's on trial. He's speaking before the man who can kill him or give him release. And he says to Agrippa. He's just describing his life. He said, and I said, who are you, Lord? So this is the moment Jesus has shown up and he says, stop persecuting me. And Paul's like, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. To whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. How do you explain Paul's radical conversion? Other than Jesus stepping in and doing a work in, in, in which he could not have done himself. Paul says he called me to life by his grace. He revealed to him his son and it changed him. Paul went from death to life, from blind to sight, from opposition to obedience. And while Paul doesn't say, and there was this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, it begs the question, what causes a person who is hell-bent, driving towards a city to go persecute Christians, what caused him to be so radically changed? A transformation, a regeneration, a renewal had taken place. And when that happened, Paul freely and willingly obeyed and followed Christ. And let me tell you something. Paul's conversion is very radical. It's like night and day in the sense that he was systematically working out killing Christians. His regeneration and renewal is a work of the Holy Spirit. But let me tell you something. It is not more radical and beautiful than what God does in your life as well. The same power, the same Holy Spirit that knocked Paul off his horse, opened up heaven so that he could clearly see the sun, that he could clearly hear that God had a purpose for his life to go and preach the gospel to Gentiles is the exact same Holy Spirit who causes you to go from death to life. It's the same Holy Spirit that gives you sight. It's the same Holy Spirit that removes the blindness and the deafness so that you can hear and respond to the call of 
the gospel. And when that work happens in your life, you joyfully choose and willingly choose to give your life to Christ. That's what irresistible grace means. It means that the Spirit overcomes all the effects of our depravity. He gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, even life itself, so that we can finally be reconciled to God. Now, how does this doctrine make uh, its application into our lives? Just two quick points here. The first one is this. Irresistible grace brings to rest the anxiety of choice. The anxiety of choice. You ever gone to a restaurant and the menu is like a book? I mean, just page after page after page. And you think, God, there's so many choices here. I've got to choose the right one. See, if salvation depends on my choice, then the weight of that choice depends on you. And as a pastor, I can tell you that often brings uncertainty and anxiety. Probably one of the most common questions I get as a pastor. How can I know that I'm saved? Did I really give my life over to Jesus when I did? Or was I pretending? Was I faking? Was I duped? How can I know that I truly chose Jesus? Greg Forster writes this, when the ultimate issue of eternal life or death is determined by my own choice, there will always be an element of self-doubt. But friends, when the grace of God appears apart from your works, before your choice, then it puts the weight of our salvation where it belongs, on God himself. He bears the burden so that our yoke is easy and light. Irresistible grace means that in the everyday stuff of life, you can rest in the grace that not only does God begin the good work in you, he also sees it to completion. And number two, irresistible grace invites us to worship God in the unknown. In the unknown. People often say, okay, Clint, you've just shown me from Scripture that God initiates salvation and the work of regeneration and renewal is a prior work of the Spirit to my choosing of God. But how does God the Holy Spirit accomplish that work without violating my free will? People ask that question all the time. And here's how the Bible answers that question. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I didn't grow up in the church. This was a big question for me. How, how do these things work? They seem to be in opposition. And one day I came across this verse, and it just put all of that wrestle to rest. Not because I had solved it. Because you don't solve these things. But it, but it showed me God has intentionally not revealed every single detail of every single thing to us. It just, it just helped me to go, okay, I'm not missing it. Because I thought, man, I'm not, I'm not putting it all together. Maybe I just don't know how it works. And this verse showed me, no, no, no. God has purposely chosen not to give it all away. And as a parent, I get that. There's lots of questions my kids ask, and I go, that's a great question, but the answer, I'm going to hold back for now. You're not ready to understand the answer to that question yet. And I get that as a parent. See, God has not revealed to us how he accomplishes his work of salvation without violating human free will. So the simple answer to the question is, I don't know how he does it. I just know that he does. Here's what I know to be true from Scripture. 
that if God does not overcome a person's resistance to him, if God does not make a person alive, if God does not draw someone to himself, then no one will ever come to him. And yet, every single time a person puts their faith in God, it's because God has given them new life, overcome their resistance, and their subsequent expression of their faith is a glad and free response of their will. They're glad to do it. How those two things get worked out, I have no idea. And that's what, when Paul is considering those mysteries of salvation, do you know how he wraps up that discussion in Romans chapter 11? So Paul's just spent 11 chapters outlining salvation and the mysteries of God and all of that. And here's what he says. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor and who's given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. When we consider the mystery of how it is that God could gloriously do all the work of salvation so that he gets all the glory and at the same time not violate our will. Paul says there's just simply a depth to his riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He is unsearchable, unfathomable, and friends, he is beyond our ability to understand. He's bigger than we think he is, guys. And if you're trying, and Paul says, instead of trying and putting all of that energy and trying to understand exactly how he works out those things, Paul says, just put all that energy into worshiping him. Worship him. Without understanding how he does it, worship him simply that he does it. That our salvation is from him and through him and for him. And friends, he deserves all the glory forever. Let's pray.